All right, jumping in, and it's a new year, and as a church, we are jumping into the brilliant book of Acts, and I love this book. I'm pumped for this series. There is nothing boring in the book of Acts. It's got everything that a hit film or TV series has, and maybe more, supernatural events, healings, prison escapes, shipwrecks, riots, speeches, life transformation, court cases, plot for murder, murder, persecution, sneaking fugitives out of the cities, teleporting, sorcery, and the kingdom of God being spread and built in the most unlikely places. The book of Acts is phenomenal. So church, let us be reignited by this book to dream and live into the acts of Jesus through the power of his spirit in the community of the church. Let us pray as we open God's word this morning to Acts chapter 2. Lord Jesus, as we open your word to the book of Acts, I pray that you would recapture our hearts. Spirit, would you fill us afresh with your power, and may we be captivated by the kingdom of our heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. All right, Acts chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 to 13. It'll be on the screen, or you can follow along on your phone or a Bible. And here it is. When the day of Pentecost came, the disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Now hold on, pastor, you said this book wasn't boring. Why are you reading a huge list of places? Just take a look on the screen for a moment behind me. There's two empires. This is kind of the known world of the time. And there is a name of a place or city from the, the whole of the known world. What is Jesus doing on the day he starts his church? He's spreading the gospel to all tribes, tongues, and nations. This has always been God's heart right from the get-go, right from the promise to Abraham. And here it is being being dished out by the Spirit. It's amazing. If you look how small Israel and Jerusalem is on that map and how broad the gospel is about to go in one day, it's amazing. Oh, where's Israel? Uh, the Medi- yeah, the Mediterranean Sea on the right. It's, it's a little... I'm blocking you. I'm sorry, Sarah. All right. <laughs> All these people said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Now, it's a little bit early yet to talk about wine, so I'm going to come back to that. But as we think about this passage, think about how wild God is. 
You never know how God's going to break into our world. In this instant, it's the sound but not the movement of the mighty wind. And it was loud enough. People came from all over Jerusalem to wherever this was taking place, likely located in a house close to the temple. Then fire, a symbol of God's presence, come to rest on the disciples. From chapter 1, we know there's about 120 of them gathered. They're filled with the Spirit, who enables them to talk in other languages, to declare the wonders of God, to declare the wonders of what God has done in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to know about the wonders of God? Read the Gospels. I don't think you could make this story up. God lit a flame that day, sparking a wildfire of God's grace that has not been extinguished for 2,000 years. The fact that we're gathered here today is proof of that fact. And as we think of this story, God's timing is always calculated and always has layers of meaning. It's the Jewish festival of Pentecost. You might think, Penta what? Pentecost is a word meaning 50. This festival took place 50 days after the Passover festival, or for us, Easter. And it was a festival also called the Festival of Weeks, or the Fruits of the Wheat Harvest. It's an agricultural festival where the farmers, get this, offered the first sheaf of wheat from their crop to God. So in part, it was initial gratitude, and in part, it was a prayer that the rest of the crop would be safely gathered in. All right, and and here in Acts 2 in Pentecost, it becomes a celebration that the first fruit of the harvest of people coming to Jesus has come to pass. At the end of the chapter, 3,000 people come to Jesus this day. And then it's a prayer that more will come. And throughout the book of Acts, more and more people are brought into Christ's church. That harvest continues to this day. Billions of people follow Jesus. Pentecost was more than an agricultural festival too. It commemorated the story of the Exodus. 50 days after God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites found themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God, and he came down with the law. So Pentecost is also about God giving his rescued people a new way of life that they're to live out. Now in Acts, Jesus ascended to heaven, and the Spirit of God comes down at this time, not writing the law on stone or on paper, but in the hearts of humans. Just as Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. Acts 2 is this moment that Ezekiel had prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. Now, this is some really good stuff. It's fun to dig into history and uncover layers of theology. But as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, what is more important is that you are out there in the wind, letting the Holy Spirit sweep through your life, your heart, your imagination, your powers of speech, and transform you from a listless or lifeless believer into someone whose heart is on fire with the love of God. Let those words sink in. I know they need to for me. I spend a lot of time reading and learning about God, but I don't spend enough time in the wind. Reading up on and studying and listening to podcasts, that comes natural to us in the Western world. It does for me. But spending time seeking the filling and empowering of God's Spirit, maybe not as much. And maybe that's because it takes time. 
and more pointedly, maybe time that feels unproductive. What were the disciples doing before the Spirit came? In chapter 1, we learned they're all joined together constantly in prayer. It looks like there was 10 days between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost that the 120 followers were gathered together in constant prayer. And if you look throughout church history, large movements of God or revivals or renewals have always been preceded by a group of people with the holy discontent of the way things are who gave up their precious time to gather and pray and pray and pray. I want to tell us a story about the Hebrides revival. If you don't know where that is, neither did I. It's a, a few. It's a, a, a clump of islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. Hebrides, thank you. This revival began with two sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. One was 84 years old and blind, the other 82 and crippled with arthritis. They were greatly burdened because they had been told no young people attended public worship at their church. They decided to pray twice a week. On Tuesdays and Fridays, they got on their knees at 10 in the evening and remained there until 3 or 4 in the morning. Two old women in a humble cottage. Eventually, Peggy had a vision of the church crowded with young people, so they persuaded their minister to call a session. Seven men covenanted not to give rest or peace to God Almighty until he moved in people's lives. Those men also began to meet on Tuesday and Friday nights for months. Then one night in November... A young man began to pray from Psalm 24. God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? He got no further. He fell into a trance. He lay on the floor in the barn, and within a matter of minutes, three other elders fell into a trance, and the minister and the other intercessors were gripped by the conviction that a God-sent revival must always be related to holiness and godliness. And an awareness of God gripped the whole community. Little work was done as men and women gave themselves to thinking about eternal things. God seemed to be everywhere. And in the little cottage, the two sisters knew that God had kept his promise and told their minister to invite an evangelist to come and help them. Duncan Campbell was called to lead a series of meetings. For the first week, not a lot happened, although five young people gave their lives to Jesus. But then on December 13, 1949, at the end of the meeting, all had left except for Campbell and one other. And the deacon said, don't be discouraged. God is hovering over us. He'll break through at any moment. I can already hear the rumblings of heaven's chariot wheels. He began to pray. Five minutes later, the local blacksmith came back to church and said, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. We were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. Come to the door. See the crowd that's here. It was 11 at night. And six and seven hundred people had gathered around the church. They'd been moved by a power they could not explain. A hunger and thirst gripped them. And that meeting continued until four in the morning. Strong men bowed down and trembled in God's presence. Nearby, a dance for young people was in progress. But people, they ran from it as though fleeing from a plague. And they made for church. In a matter of minutes, the dance hall was empty. Others who had gone to bed were woken up by the Spirit, got dressed and made for the church. Over the next few nights, hundreds gathered in different places. There was a prayer meeting every day at noon. Those converted the night before were expected to attend. All work stopped for two hours, and people gathered for prayer. No appeals were made. People made their way to the prayer meetings to praise God for his salvation. This continued for several years and spread to many of the islands. People who had never been near a church were suddenly arrested by the Spirit of God, 
stopped work and gave themselves to seeking the Lord. Amazing story of a mighty move of God's spirit. And the catalyst? Two elderly ladies devoted two nights a week to passionate prayer for God to move. And boy, did God ever move. This is perhaps a bit of an aside, but I just want us to think about these two ladies for a moment. They were in their 80s. One was blind, one was crippled by arthritis. Our current lawmakers have decided that two old painful lives no longer necessarily have meaning, and if they request it, they can end their lives to stop their suffering. The underlying ethic of euthanasia is that if we are suffering, our meaning and purpose ends. So why bother living? But the question is, is that true? Is there no meaning in suffering? This story takes place a little over 70 years ago. If euthanasia was legal back then and these ladies had bought into that worldview, perhaps this revival would not have happened. So what did these ladies know? They were made in God's image. And therefore, they have vast value and dignity no matter how healthy or unhealthy they are. They knew that as long as there was breath in their lungs, they could have an impact on the kingdom of God. And what an impact they had indeed. So NSA, if we want to be a church where we see the Spirit of God move mightily, we need to put aside time and pray with fervor. So will you choose to carve out time in your day to ask the Spirit of God to move? Maybe a simple way is to shift how much time you pray in your small groups. The North Shore is full of people who have no interest in Jesus. We need a move of the Spirit and a bold courage to be witnesses for Jesus in this place. Hosea 10.12 says this, Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Now, it's so easy to say, yes, I'm going to pray and I'll pray later, and then it's easy to forget. And so why don't we take some time right now, just a minute, and let's pray for a move of God in our church and our city. So please feel free to pray quietly with someone beside you, or you can pray all on your own and just take a moment. Let's pray for the Spirit of God to move in this place. You can wrap up your prayer. As a church, Lord, we pray, come Holy Spirit and move our hearts and our church and our city. Amen.
prayer ignites the presence of God. And prayer is also our launch pad into transformation and mission. Now, we're going to move on to the baptism of the Spirit. In Acts 1, Jesus told his disciples that they would be baptized with the Spirit. And here in Acts 2, we have the dramatic entrance by the Holy Spirit, the wind, the fire, the ability to speak in foreign languages. This is an awesome, awesome scene. The word for baptism means immersed or plunged into. The Spirit gets immersed and plunged into us. And the word commonly would be used to the reference of dyeing cloth or wool. You would baptize or immerse white fabric into the dye, and it comes out a new color. Likewise, when we're baptized or filled with the Spirit, we're made new. There's a purpose behind it, to join the kingdom of God. Of course, there are a lot of theories, a lot of theologies on the baptisms of the Spirit. But I think, in my understanding, what matters most is that God's Spirit does something to you, to us, and makes us new. One commentator said this, He said, the tendency today is to focus on the phenomena accompanying the event. Yet the arrival of the Spirit to change the disciples is the real central theme to be grasped here. This is a redemptive event. The Holy Spirit changing lives and making them fruitful. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for or pursue an encounter or a baptism or filling of the Spirit. Many people have had a profound encounter and it's changed their lives forever. One is Dr. Rob Reimer. He's in the Alliance in the States. He's got a book called River Dwellers, and River Dwellers is an excellent book talking about living in the Spirit. He tells the story in the book as a 19-year-old on the night of a big breakup. He's heartbroken. He cries out to God in the pain of rejection, and God meets him and first tells him that the girl, that, that he was treating Jesus like the girl had just treated him and broken up with him. Ouch. Yet he pictured Jesus with open arms. Reimer said, I felt conviction. My tears moved from tears of self-pity to tears of repentance. And I surrendered my life to Christ. I said, from now on, I'm yours. You lead, I'll follow. As I prayed those words, through tears of conviction, the Spirit of God filled me. I felt an overwhelming sense of the love of God flooding into my soul. I felt a deep joy bubbling up within me. It was the Spirit of God releasing love and joy into my soul like I had never experienced before. That day completely changed my life. It's a modern-day account of a baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit. In 2012, I was interning at a church, and we went on a mission trip to Guatemala with a youth group. One night near the end of a trip, we, we were at church, and it was a powerful worship service. Many teens encountered the Spirit of God that night. One teen in particular felt the love of God in a powerful way. They couldn't stay standing, and they sat and lie on the floor laughing and crying tears of joy for a long, long time. Again, this love and joy of God bubbling within them. It was an amazing night. But after high school, this individual stopped walking with Jesus. I tell you these similar but contrasting stories to say, yes, experiencing God is so very important. We need to pursue it. And God changes lives all the time through these. But one experience is not going to carry you through the rest of your life. We need to be continually filled, filled again and again. And this, of course, implies a relationship with God. The filling of the Spirit is that thing we pursue again and again. In Acts 2, the disciples were filled. 
Then again in Acts chapter 4, Peter is filled to defend himself in court. And later in that chapter, he's filled for evangelism. Numerous times in the book of Acts, the disciples are filled with the Spirit to be empowered for the mission of God. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus. He says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads you to debauchery. I did say I would get back to the wine. He's saying, if we get drunk, we throw out our ability to do what is right. We give control of our body over to a substance, and what I believe is implied, we also throw out our ability to connect with God through the life-giving Spirit. So he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. God wants us to be filled and united with Him. So to end with, I want to talk about four ways that we can be filled with the Spirit. Experiencing God, theological understanding, inner transformation, and missional engagement. Now, of course, there are many, many ways that the Spirit works, and we can never put the Spirit of God in a box. Jesus himself said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. We can't fully understand what God is doing, where he's coming from or going. Anyways, I'm going to talk about these four things as I think they can be helpful categories for us to think of and pray into. So first, experiencing God. This can be, but doesn't have to be, what we would call a more charismatic experience. But this is where you experience God in a clear and profound way. This can be accompanied by speaking in tongues or holy laughter or healing, whether physical or emotional. But I think God can experience, we can experience God in all sorts of ways, through reading scripture, through the love and care of Christians who themselves have the spirit of God living in them. We can experience God through loving and serving others, talking about Jesus, through worship and through creation. When we experience God, the spirit is bringing us to him, drawing him into a deeper relationship with Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's and remain in his. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Remaining in relationship with Jesus gives us his joy. If you think about your best friends or the family you're closest with, you have joy and laughter together, and so it is with Jesus. Even look at Acts 2.13. People thought the disciples were drunk. All right, there was something going on in there. They were having a good time and enjoying. They were filled with the Spirit, not with wine. And therefore, there must be a joyous freedom about the behavior of Spirit-filled Christians. And I like that. A joyous freedom when we're filled with the Spirit. Next, we can also be filled to have theological insight and understanding. There is a lot going on in the Bible. And we are finite, and God is infinite. And through his spirit, God reveals things to us and makes his word come alive so that we can begin to comprehend the mysteries of God a little more fully. I love how the Apostle Paul prays over the church at Colossae. He says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now that is a prayer, 
And you can add that to the prayer for how you want the Spirit to move in your heart, in your friends, or in your kids and grandkids in our city and beyond. This moves us into the third way we can be filled, life transformation. Jesus loves us as we are, of course, but he also loves us too much to leave us where we are. We're called to be transformed into the likeness of Christ to act and love more like Jesus. So I actually want to highlight the same prayer a bit differently. May God fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father. We can try to transform our lives on our own power, and maybe we can make some small steps. But it is January 21. How many people have given up on their New Year's resolutions already? Three weeks in. God's heart is to transform us. But we need to let him in and rely on the Spirit to move us into the fullness of life that he has planned for us. And then fourth, and one that's all over the book of Acts, God fills us with his Spirit for missional engagement to be witnesses to the wonders of God, as were the disciples in Acts chapter 2. As Rob Reimer says, God fills us to spill us. Love that one. God fills us to spill us. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are filled up and fired up to declare to the world that Jesus is the true king, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God the Father. Jesus came with all the wisdom of God, and he began to reverse the curse of sin by healing and restoring people to life and by forgiving sin and reconciling people's relationship with God. And then, the Holy Spirit gives uneducated, ordinary men the ability to speak to thousands and change the course of history. The disciples declared these wonders of God. They declared all that Jesus began to do and teach, as well as his triumphal victory over death. So come, Holy Spirit, use us to do the same. If you're open to God, who knows what God might do in and through your life and through our church? Just like the harvest of Pentecost, we are God's workers called first to a relationship with God and second to join Jesus' mission to bring in the rest of the harvest as the Spirit fills and empowers us to do so. Let me end with a quick story. Last year, I ended up in the ER with one of our teens. It was after midnight, and we ended up being in a room with one other teenager. My student ended up falling asleep, and I felt the nudge of the Spirit. The Spirit was saying to my spirit, talk to him. I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm tired. He's on his phone. I'm on my phone. But I was also kind of like, did they realize they put a youth pastor in here with him? So I started a conversation and shortly revealed that I was the worst kind of Christian, a pastor, and he said, I thought pastors were terrible people. This opened up a really good conversation about Christianity, about the church, about sin and humanity. And I ended up giving him his number, but he never reached out. I have no idea what happened, but Lord willing, I planted a seed. He didn't know the spirit wanted, to meet, wanted him to meet a pastor in the ER that night. I know I sure didn't. And so church, let us step up and step in and ask to be filled with the spirit and respond to those nudges and pray that God will open the floodgates and draw people to himself. Uh, worship team, come on back. Let me pray for us.
So Holy Spirit, I pray that as a church community, you would fill us afresh, that your power would come in mighty ways. God, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that we would pursue holiness and righteousness in our own lives, and that we would pursue you in prayer for God to move. And so, Lord, send your spirit on your church with the rushing, mighty Pentecostal wind. Breathe new life into dry bones and fan the flames of revival fire. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.